Welcome to Radio Free Culture from WFMU, where we examine issues at the intersection of digital media and the arts. My name is Cheyenne Homan, and in this episode, we'll be talking with Paul Rees-Mandel and Eric Klein of Radio Survivor, a long-running blog and recent podcast. This is part two of two, in which we discuss issues facing music and podcasts, fundraising, and community podcasting. Uh, earlier in the conversation, you mentioned that you think of podcasting and radio, like making radios, as the same thing. But um, I think that podcasting for me is a little more free feeling because I don't have to constrict myself to time limitations either. Um, where in radio, I feel like there's more of a real time aspect that that sort of limits the amount of banter or programming that you can pack into a certain right. amount of time. But that's that's also, um, that might just also be a recent development. I don't disagree, but I, I heard a rumor about uh, the radio station that I used to work at that in the in the 50s and the 60s, they that's how they ran their clock. There was no clock. <laughs> that, the, that the individuals who were doing talk radio back then, they talked until they were done and the person who came after them waited their turn and, and walked in the door. That's really more of a... Um, a recent phenomenon that that every radio show is 29 minutes or 59 minutes and and on depending on the station that you have certain holes and so like what i was when i was saying they're the same thing i think it's um it's all voices and music is is really what i was getting at and then of course yeah there's a lot of differences between the two the two things and they allow for lots of different i mean yeah, like you said legally not only can you swear on podcasts but you can also um uh, get money from your listeners in, in a whole lot of different ways. There's more freedom to monetize the internet than there is the airwaves um, for whatever it's worth. And so I think that's a, that's a big one, especially for, uh, for certain public radio shows that have a certain set of rules for how they make, how they make a living off of their terrestrial content. And then when they switch over to their internet content, they uh, they function under under a broader set of rules that are a little more permissible. Yeah, you know, I think Eric brings up a really great point. I think we can think of podcasting as an echo of that time in FM broadcasting in 1950s when there were very few FM broadcasters, and so KPFA, which was the first community radio station in the country, was really experimenting with a whole new form in a lot of ways. And then we can also see echoes of the late 60s and early 70s when freeform radio uh, was a, a thing when it existed. And it existed mostly in sort of late nights, um, but where some commercial stations really allowed their DJs to do whatever for four and five hours, right, for, you know, for a fairly long time, which could include talk. Um, it could include music. It could include, you know, uh, skits. It could include phone calls, or we think of even what still goes on at WBAI at, uh, of, uh, of the radio Nameable, which is essentially free form. But in the intervening years, radio sort of solidified. Even, even in kind of crazy left-of-the-dial radio, it's solidified into this idea of this is my show, and it's two hours long, and this is, you know, I have to work within these constraints. 
Um, and so we'll see where podcasting goes because I think what we're starting to see is a developing set of practices. We might call them even best practices. And they certainly do not yet echo radio. But I don't think it is an accident that when we look at the top of the iTunes charts, a lot of these shows are public radio shows or public radio style shows that are pretty tightly produced and adhere to a form that is a whole lot more like what you hear on the radio than what you hear on a lot of the rest of the charts, which can often be a lot more free form, a lot more rolling, um, often not well produced in terms of audio. Um, Podcasting is reopening our eyes, I think, to this idea of there being many different ways to do this. Um, will be interesting to see what happens to it um, as as time goes on. I certainly hope that we'll continue to see lots of experimentation, lots more freeform ideas. But Eric and I have a constant discussion about the Radio Survivor podcast and how we should format it. And what we should do about length and, you know, are, you know, is it too long? Will people listen to it past the hour mark? Where should we put different things? So yeah. it is, a, it's a constant evaluation on top of the fact that we, in the back of our heads, kind of would like to see it get on the radio, which would require making it fit into that radio clock. And really relevant, I think, to, to listeners of your show, Cheyenne, is the fact that in podcasting, of course, music is a problem, right? Yeah. Having a strict music program rubs up against copyright. And the fact that, strictly speaking, if you want to use uh, music in your podcast, you must have explicit permission to do so, which of course is why a resource like the Free Music Archive is so wonderful because it does open up a wide variety and amazing depth of really amazing artists and music to a podcaster. But of course, so many people, when they think of, of it, they want to play the music they know already, which has probably not necessarily been licensed in such a way that they can freely use it on a podcast without worrying about getting a nasty letter in the mail uh, by registered mail telling them to cut it out because you're breaking copyright law. And that's that's definitely one place where radio, uh, because of its longstanding uh nature and it's already worked out these issues people may not always like the fact that even at a non-commercial station you you pay royalties um every every year uh for the right to play music but it what it does is if you're a dj on a, on a community radio station or college station or a public station or commercial station there are no legal restrictions on the music you can play um, as long as the station is up to date on its rights and, and generally most are podcasting isn't so free in that way yeah, that's something that I think a lot of um, podcasters that I've spoken to have admitted is one of the big things holding back podcasts. I really appreciate the music podcasts that do go out of their way to find licensed music that they can use in their podcast without worry and turn on their audiences to a lot of new stuff. You know, uh, Liz Berg does a really great weekly part of her show that is broadcast on WFMU, it consists of all FMA tracks that she's found in the last week. And so then that hour-long chunk of music goes out as a podcast weekly. I am a subscriber. <laughs> and I think it's so it's it's great in part and sadly because it's rare that mm -hmm. they are music-only shows in podcasting. So that's that's one of the the disappointments right. I think that we're struggling with currently. But mean, meanwhile, I mean there's the SoundCloud playlist. Mm -hmm. And you can uh, 
you know, I know, I know, uh, I have a friend who is creating top 40 pop music, and SoundCloud is a um, vital part of their business. They put their songs on SoundCloud, and it's, I mean, and, and that's where um, some of the kids, I can call them kids, I think, confidently, uh, interact with their songs, is, is there on the internet. And so you might not be able to um, stick it into your feed and use it as you will, but there's, there's still other ways that, um, that music is being shared uh, legally, and it changes. It's, all, yeah. it's, it's a, an exciting time. But there, and there's uh, also a platform called Mixcloud, which is specifically made for DJ mixes, but a lot of radio stations take advantage of it to basically put up sets or put up full shows. I don't understand their business model because it's free, but all the rights are paid for. So I don't know what Silicon Valley billionaire or VC has put up the money for it, but it does really work. And, and I, I fielded a question at Radio Survivor. People email us all the time with questions, which is great. And someone said, hey, I do this jazz show on on a uh, community radio station. We're really excited about it, and we really want to distribute it as a podcast. Mm-hmm. How would we do that? And said, you know, you wanted both technically and to some extent legally. And, you know, so we gave some advice. I said, but unless you have permission for every song you play, you, you know, you really are may run into trouble as a podcast, but here's this platform, Mixcloud, where you can upload your your show for the week, and for at least as long as Mixcloud is around, um, it's it's legal. Yeah, one thing I noticed about Mixcloud, I think, is that when you are listening to a specific song, like they're timestamped, and as you move down through the playlist, they have little links where you can go and buy the track from different um, online vendors, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. That sounds right. So that might be part of the reason why it's, you know, surviving um, in its current form. Uh, another thing that I wanted to ask you all about that you mentioned earlier was the community podcast model of online radio stations. And I'm just curious about um, examples that you have run into of this, of this model working and what sorts of programming has come out of that. You know, the first time that I am aware of the word community podcasting was when Bainbridge Community Media uh, came. And actually, they approached us, the founders of the that community podcasting network, approached us, and then we interviewed them about their project. And, it, the, and these, these were two people that come from community radio and uh, made a decision to go full force into podcasting and community podcasting, which was really exciting. So they, they built studios in their community, small town in, in Washington State. It's an island. And uh, I think they told us it's an island about the size of Manhattan, but there's a whole lot more trees and less people. <laughs> um, and so their little island community, uh, you know, those people come into their offices and record podcasts uh, with, with their invited guests. It's usually an interview show. And it serves the community, and they also had a really cool um, high school youth component so that there were um, high school students producing podcasts. And then that idea, as soon as we noticed it existed, off we went, finding more and more and more examples of people doing the kinds of podcasts that are really no-brainers when you think about it. But um, we don't, you, know, you don't often think about a podcast as being hyper-local or linked to its community. You think about a podcast being on the Internet where you want to address the entire world. Uh, you want to bring the ideas of your of your guest out into the the world, but now here, why not? You know, since since the internet is sort of this unlimited resource where you can post anything you want, why not be hyper local 
as soon as we're done with our interview, Cheyenne, we're going to be putting into our feed the a radio producer in Salt Lake City who is bringing community podcasters into her radio station. That station in particular doesn't air the vast majority of what those podcasters record, but those producers are creating hyper-local content that's very relevant to the Salt Lake City community. And it's, it's also just changed. It's fun because it's changed the way I view podcasting. Like I've, I've already started planning to make radio that's very much about where I live and what I'm thinking about today. And I don't imagine it being interesting to people who, who don't live in Portland, although, you know, it's out there on the internet for everybody. And maybe someone does want to find out what just happened with marijuana legalization, for instance, which is about to, recreational marijuana is about to go on sale in less than a week here in Portland. And so that's a funny idea for a hyper-local <laughs> community podcast. I mean, I think, so it's interesting. I think when, when Eric and I speak of community podcasting, we're kind of thinking of podcasting in the spirit of community radio. And I think that's a particular genre, if you will. I think there's a lot of community podcasting going on if you take a few steps away from that particular view of it. For instance, uh, a lot of newspapers have podcasts and, and newspapers are typically pretty hyper local. And, you know, and, and so they create these podcasts are specifically for people who live in Boston or Atlanta. Often, I think if you look, if you really start to kind of, if you do like a good Google search or iTunes search and you were to say, you know, something like Jersey City podcast, you'd probably come up with somebody who's podcasting about Jersey City in some way, shape or form. I know it's true here in Portland, Oregon. I know it's true in Detroit. And the thing I think that often happens is that podcasting, for better or worse, happens in basements and bedrooms. And radio happens in studios and then is on the airwaves where somebody can stumble onto it, right? Hit seek, hit me flipping the dial and all of a sudden come onto it. Podcasting is harder to find that way unless you're like, oh, I wonder if there's a, a podcast in Jersey City about Jersey City, which a lot of people may never even occur to them to do that looking. And in community radio, because of that physical plant, because of its exposure, it tends to both bring people in. They're interested. They go looking for you. They find out about you. But there also tends to be some more outward looking, bringing people in for interviews, uh, making connections with local businesses, making connections with local government. Uh, there's a lot of that kind of networking that goes on within the community. And a community podcaster has to sort of, I think, change his or her mindset and think, oh, how do I get people in my city to know about me? Now, Bainbridge Community Broadcasting, I think, is a fantastic idea because they're basically taking that community radio mindset. And so the way they spread the word is they called up the community theater, which is well-regarded and well-loved, and said, how can we work together? They're working with, with the local museum. They're working with emergency services. And they're working with the high school. So they went out and actively said, how can we help spread the word? You know, how can we... And we can do a special episode about the new season of the theater. We can talk to the actors. And they could also say, hey, come out and see this and do all sorts of other things because they're not on the radio and don't have to worry about any non-commercial uh, rules. But I think community podcasting, the challenge is, is that I think it is not enough to just build it and they will come in most cases. I'm sure there are some people where it just gets stumbled upon and it takes off. That happens. But more likely, you're going to have to do some networking and work to try and make people aware. But also, I think what's important about this idea is to make your podcast or your podcast network a resource for your community 
in, in some way so that it's not merely a matter of, oh, this is about Jersey City, isn't that great? But rather, I can learn about what's going on in my town that I might not know about. I can learn about the local theater scene. I can learn about local bands. I can learn about what's going on at City Hall, you know, in ways that I might not learn from the local paper because maybe it's a bit more regional. I might not learn from the New York Times, certainly, because it barely pays attention to New Jersey that I might not learn on the radio and television because, you know, there's very few TV stations or radio stations in that area that really focus on Jersey City. So I think there's a lot of opportunities there, but it also requires people to start thinking about it in that mindset of, of really uh, building those ties, not just on the microphone. Yeah, it was interesting because when I first heard the term community podcasting, which was a while ago, but you brought it back up to mind, I was thinking like, oh, I wonder if other free culture nerds would want to do an episode of Radio Free Culture. And that would be, right. uh, you know, the same idea, but not about a place, but about a topic. So I'm wondering if, if you've encountered things like that, where people are kind of podcasting under the same umbrella. Uh, yes, but no, but I love that idea. And I want to <laughs> steal it right now. I've actually tried recently to pull together groups of people with that idea, where it's like, you know, I had a friend who wanted to do radio about Portland, who wanted to do community broadcasting. And uh, we definitely could envision getting it done every once in a while, but we couldn't envision getting it done once a week, which seems really important for building an audience and lending credibility and being a legitimate podcast. And so this idea that, well, what if we asked, and he had a friend who is a well-known uh, political young person in Portland, like, what if we asked this person if he wanted to record some interviews? And I was like, that's a great idea. And we should also definitely, you know, seek out this kind of this. And we, we made a little list of, of a group of people that if we could pull them together, that would have been a show. My favorite podcast, or not my favorite podcast, a <laughs> podcast that I really enjoy is Long Form. Uh, there's a group of writers who are all devoted to uh, like the magazine-length article. It's a popular podcast, and and that that appears to be how they how they run things. I, I think there's three three individuals, and they each take a turn uh, producing one entire episode, and every episode is based on that exact same theme. So it all flows together very well. That's a community of three. There's other groups of people getting it done that way. Or, yeah, or some version of that. It's it's a matter of finding it, right, and knowing what to look for, which I think is is hard because it's almost more about process than it is about content. <laughs> this is the part, Cheyenne, in our show, and I'm going to do it on your show now, where we always say, hey, do you know the answer to this question that we just <laughs> came up with on the fly? Maybe maybe you're listening right now and you and you do know about a community <laughs> podcast that we don't know about. You should email us our email address on our show is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Yeah, and, and CC me at contact at freemusicarchive.org. <laughs> yeah, and then we'll tell people about the answer. The last thing that I wanted to talk about in this interview was, do you have strong feelings about sponsorship versus like something like a crowdfunding campaign? And maybe what some of, some of our listeners who might also be interested in podcasting might glean from, <laughs> from your knowledge. Yeah, I would start by pointing people towards our uh, lengthy episode with Julie Sabatier, where she talked about retiring her podcast, which was called Rendered, and it was also called Destination DIY, because um, that we dig into that big time. And she tried several methods. And she succeeded. Yes. She tried and succeeded at several methods. This was episode number 15 of the Radio Survivor podcast with Julie Sabatier. Uh, she still um, decided to call an end to that to those efforts 
uh, for that particular show um, just because of uh, how much work it was. I mean, she made it very clear and then detailed why it's a full-time job to, uh, to crowdfund your podcast. I support anybody uh, getting it done in any way they can. I think there are real structural issues that help determine which way you do it. The very nature of advertising is that uh, sponsors are looking to reach as many people as they can. And not every sponsor has enough money to reach millions and millions. Not every sponsor has enough money to advertise on This American Life. So they advertise on smaller podcasts. But there does seem to be a critical mass that any podcast needs to have in order to really get enough, to get enough advertiser interest to make it worth the time and effort you put into getting advertisers. And it tends to be a number that's slightly but significantly higher than the number of listeners that the vast majority of podcasts have. Yes. And, and something that we talk about on our show all the time, like what if our show is the best it's ever going to be, reaches a huge audience that we're really happy about, and yet it's always floating well below that magical five-digit right. five number that we need to reach in order to, to get Squarespace interested in us. Have we failed as podcasters? And we say, no, we haven't failed. We're just not going to get right. any money for this work. Right. I think advertising can be fine. Um, an important point to me and why I work where I work is because you choose the advertisers you will have on your show. You will never be bullied or strong-armed into taking an advertiser you don't want. Uh, we try to pre-filter a little bit and make sure that we're not taking on companies that might pose a really strong ethical challenge to anyone, you know, and then every podcaster has absolute vetoes, no questions asked. And I think that that can help, you know, any given podcaster retain his or her integrity. Um, that may be a methodology not every podcaster wants to pursue for all sorts of reasons. It can be for philosophical reasons. It can be for pragmatic reasons, in which case, yes, then you need to figure out you know, if you want the podcast to make money, you have to figure out what methodology you will use, which, which isn't so different from community radio. In community radio, there's just a very time-worn method of bringing in listener contributions, which is the pledge drive, right? That the thing that everyone loves to hate when you take a week or two out of the schedule and you ask, 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 ask. And um, the Maximum Fund Network, uh, which is run by uh, Jesse Thorne, who has the public radio show Bullseye and himself uh, got his start in college radio. They do sort of a version of that, uh, which Julie right. actually talks a bit about in, in, in her interview. But they have some advertising funding, but I think they are mostly listener funded. And a lot of, I think a lot of podcasts make it work through listener funding. I mean, you have to set your expectations. You haven't said the word Patreon yet, which yeah. I know we have our eye on Patreon. Uh, our Radio Survivor podcast has its own Patreon. And we tend to take a look when other podcasts that we become aware of have uh, Patreons that are slightly more successful than ours. And we make note. Like, yeah. Oh, how interesting. How can we learn from this? Yeah. We stumbled upon a, um, a horror movie podcast uh, just the other week that had a, a pretty nice Patreon going. And it's nothing that they can buy a home with, but it certainly seems like they have a certain number of listeners in the hundreds who uh, say, we love this thing. Thank you for giving it to us for free. Here's a couple bucks. And uh, we want our T-shirt eventually or whatever, yeah. whatever toy they expect to get out of their investment. Well, uh, what I like seeing is, is that, you know, sort of crowdfunding has sort of been dominated by the Kickstarter idea where... You set a goal, you reach this goal, usually a big one, 
and you try to get a whole bunch of money at one time. Podcasting, it's, it's, it's an imperfect fit because podcasting is sort of ongoing. Yeah. So you can kind of do it in pledge drive style where you do, you know, well, we'll do this in seasons. That's something that, say, Roman Mars of 99% Invisible has been very successful at. We'll kickstart the next season of this show and we won't make another one really until we get this money. But Patreon is a nice model because it's an ongoing support model, which is much more like what's being developed in public and community radio. This idea of the sustaining funder where I'll give you $10 a month to do this thing or even a dollar a month to do this thing because it's much more likely that the podcast is coming out weekly or bi-weekly or monthly or something like that. But I think we're hoping to see more innovation in this um, because I think, you know, as it is in so much of grassroots media, which includes like indie record labels, which includes now people who are just making their songs on YouTube and putting them out that way. Being supported by directly by the people who like your work is a great method. And it is, it is not a new method. It's been around a long time. I mean, you know, from people going to see your your band in a in a Knights of Columbus hall and paying three bucks and then buying your seven inch after the show is over. What's great is the internet gives us a few more options for making that connection rather than, you know, sticking five bucks in the mail and, you know, and, and sticking a stamp on it. Do the kids know that that's what radio producers used to do in community radio? Well, indeed, and, and they still do. I mean, alternative radio still sells its archives on cassette and CD and is downloads now. It still happens. And I don't think any of these methods is superior. I think it's important it aligns with your own values and your objectives. If your objective is to be hyper-specific, to be really niche, to really serve a particularly well-defined community, it might be difficult to get the numbers necessary for advertisers. Unless, of course, you're in a niche that also is a natural for advertisers. If you're really about uh, video games, that might be easier than if you're really uh, about 78 records for which there really is no ready advertiser. You may, you know, but also it's about if podcasting is about building community, right? Then I think support is part of that. It can be mutual support or mutual aid, even in that way. And in which then it's important for you to think about how your podcast is supporting other ventures and other people who you like and who you feel are doing good things in your community. And it's sort of that return value may come back in, in the form of a donation or something like that. Yeah, I think it's always good to acknowledge when something isn't purely labor. It's like a labor of love. And I think that you have to yeah. be able to to strike a, a bargain and a balance with yourself and not just try to turn it into a commercial venture. I think it's very similar to the work of a writer. Or like painting or having a band. There's an opportunity to make a living at all of these things. Probably if you don't have some sort of fundamental kind of love passion and sort of creative investment, it, the part about making a living will become harder. That's all that I've got for you. Unless you have anything else you'd like to talk about, um, I was just going to ask you to tell people how they can find more about your podcast if they're interested in tuning in. Yeah, uh, our podcast is Radio Survivor, and it's on the internet at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. Part of our intellectual uh, journey is um, we have fellow travelers here on the on the blog on the podcast that we that we haven't mentioned because they're not on the microphone speaking with us. But Jennifer Waits and Matthew Lassar contribute to that blog every day of their lives and contribute to our podcast and um, have helped us develop these ideas. 
All right. Thanks so much for taking the time out today. I really appreciate it. This has been really interesting. Radio Free Culture is produced by WFMU and the Free Music Archive. Our theme song this week is The Spider-Man's Nano Loop by Uncle Bibby, which can be found at freemusicarchive.org under a Creative Commons attribution license. To find out more about Paul and Eric's ongoing podcast series, please visit radiosurvivor.com 